Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Not much. Just got back from Omaha, actually. Wild spring break in Nebraska. <laughs> so I'm feeling well rested and um, ready for a great week. How are you? I had the complete opposite spring break. I went to Miami and Puerto Rico and then also got robbed last weekend. So it's been a wild time. Um, but today I'm doing great. Um, also, because we are super excited, um, not only for our interview with Ivy Soul, but also we have Alan with us on the podcast. He writes frequently for the Q doing music reviews. Um, and we're really excited to interview Ivy Soul over a glass of strawberry banana smoothie. Great. Let's get into it. a strawberry banana smoothie um because when I was in Puerto Rico um I just like had a lot of smoothies and strawberry banana is the only flavor that I'll ever get I really don't like the mango pineapple passion fruit type of vibe um I really just only like strawberry banana um and there's this um really good Vietnamese pho place that's like a block from my house and I recently tried their strawberry banana smoothie and it was fire. So now I'm really happy I have a local strawberry banana smoothie place um, now that I'm back in Philly. What are you guys' thoughts on strawberry banana smoothies? Well, me personally, I am a mango blueberry soldier, stand rep of the house of representatives. But, you know, strawberry school, strawberry school. Yeah, I'm not a big banana guy. So um, not a Damn. huge banana fan, but... You know, I appreciate, I mean, I feel like it's like one of the most popular smoothies, so I can't hate what the people love, but it's not one of my favorites. Sorry, Teresa. I'm going to be a little counterculture and say, you know what? Yeah, you know, that mango pineapple you mentioned earlier, it sounded way better, but. (laughs) Me being passionate about the strawberry banana combo, (laughs) you being lukewarm at best is being generous. (laughs) I give it a five out of ten. I'm gonna I'm gonna say six out of ten. Thank you, Alan. Um, but we are really excited for our interview today. Um, our interview is with Ivy Soul, who was um, born in Charlotte, um, grew up in Philly, and now um, lives in Brooklyn. Um, they're a rapper, producer, lyricist. Um, and I've been a huge fan of Ivy Soul for a really, really long time. Um, Alan, do you want to talk more about them since you wrote a review for The Q on their newest album, yeah. Handed? Yes, yes, yes. Ivy Soul is one of the most prominent voices in underground music right now. Um, They have a very strong passion for community and identity building. And you can really see that reflected within Candid. And the artists that they bring onto this album really demonstrate not just an intimate sense of community, but a true feeling of friendship. And all that's reflected within the melodies, um, the topics that they go over within songs like 
one one night more and dangerous. Ivysol is just a jack of all traits, and this album Candid really presents a, something different and something very intimate and deserves to stand out. Awesome. Should we call them up right now? Let's do it. Hi. How are you doing? Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. First of all, thank you, Ivy. It's so good to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Um, We have a whole slew of questions ready to ask for you. Just got to keep this as chill as possible. But honestly, the first question I really just want to ask you is just how have you been doing this week? And just like, where are you right now, present wise? Um, Doing pretty good this week. Feeling... It's, it's nice after an album is out that you kind of kind of regain a little bit of your mental space back that was being uh, focused um, on the project and its release and it's uh, the feedback that you get, all the responses. So it's nice to have a moment to not have it at the, the top of my mind. Does it feel like that... Um... Like since the album's been out a little while now, does it feel like everything's starting to slow down a bit? Or is it like, does it feel like things are picking back up with um, like the possibility of performances and all that? Yeah, it's it's a little tricky. It's, it's picking up in the sense that more opportunities are being presented, but unfortunately it's also coinciding with some reduction in like safety precautions and whatnot. Um, so it, it like, creates a little bit of dissonance to be navigating the the pandemic as someone who loves to perform, considers performing like one of the foremost parts of my artistry, but also realizing that I don't, I can't be in a room, like a room of a thousand people without a mask on, like that's, it's tough. And then sort of jumping back into um, the process of creating your album, um, the album as a whole feels like quite different from your previous works. Um, And we were wondering, like, did you come into the album knowing you wanted to do something a bit different or did it come naturally? I approached this album a lot differently than any of the other albums that I've made, primarily because I wrote all the songs before I started producing them. Um, I wrote them on guitar, um, a little bit of piano, but mostly guitar, and had a lot of the sketches and demos done before I brought them to my collaborators. Um, And I think I enjoy that a lot. And um, it felt like a more, yeah, it felt like a more cohesive individual effort Um, that was supported by collaborators rather than my collaborators kind of leading the way on the soundscape and production. Um, But no, I didn't, I didn't, I never know anything about what I'm making until it's made. The only thing I ever have up front is a name. No, that's super interesting. Um, Have you always been somebody who writes the music as well I actually wasn't even aware that you um wrote all of these songs as well so have you always been very involved in like the production and the more behind the scenes process or is that something that's come more with this album uh it's definitely peaking with this album and um for the future 
But yeah, early in my career, I was definitely just less confident in my production skills and felt like other people were making what I wanted to hear because my skill set hadn't caught up with my taste. But now I think I'm I have all the I have the toolkit <laughs> in order to make the sounds that I want to hear. So but yeah, it's a lot easier to just like, you know, kick a demo over to someone rather than try to explain to someone what you're hearing in your mind. No, for sure. Um, I'm not sure if you read our review of Candid on, on the website. Um, when I was writing it, it was kind of difficult to find the production credits and like all the linear notes on the album. I was looking on like all over Genius, Wikipedia and your Bandcamp. But um, I was looking I was looking at the YouTube videos and I found that you do have like production credits. I, I didn't know you had production credits on all of them, but I want to ask you just because um, I know that you produced a number of these songs, but what for you has been the most challenging song to produce and what's been your favorite to produce? Hmm. My favorite song at the moment is Nights Like This because I really just enjoy our approach to the storytelling and yeah, I've been working with the folks who comprise Bathe for my entire career. Um, we like went to Penn together and lived together on 42nd in Baltimore. Um, yeah, and like they, they're the people who I've just been working with the most consistently, the longest. Um, and I feel like we we've grown a lot and like that feels like a a beautiful milestone for us. Um, I'll say the most difficult one to produce was probably Call Me because it doesn't sound anything like the demo. Um, and yeah, so uh, it was like, I, I had a feeling after we made the first version of Call Me, um, I kept telling my manager slash creative partner, Ethan, like, I don't think this is it. This is like not feeling quite as intense. There was like a lack of momentum to the song. So we basically scrapped it completely. And like, now you hear something that has a lot of momentum. No, Call Me is an awesome song. Like the first time Thank I heard you. It, you like get that first like recognition of what's going on, but you twist it in such a cool way. Um, but I was also wondering, so I think this album, a lot of the arrangements on the album are really like huge. Like I was thinking specifically of like One More Night where you have all the backing vocals and all that. And then there's others that are like very stripped back and it's basically just the vocals and like a subtle rhythm. Did you have trouble balancing those two over the course of the album? Um, or was that something that just came naturally to the project? I don't know if it's balanced, to be honest. I, it's, it's, it's just what it is, to be honest. Like, I'm slowly but surely uh, kind of releasing my need to be legible um, and to be balanced because I just don't think that that is a worthwhile thing to, <laughs> to be uh, aspiring towards at this current moment in my life. Um, I think that I want to be loud when I'm loud and want to be quiet when I'm quiet and those things exist in everyone's life so I don't think that 
the album should reflect anything but that. Is that not something that you've always felt? Did you used to feel more pressure to make that kind of album? Absolutely. I feel like there's um, internal and external pressures for every person. I'm not even going to say artist, but particularly when you're a musician in hip hop and R&B, there is an expectation that you tell a story a specific way. And I just, I've been pushing up against that. Uh, um, I think that because folks kind of herald specific albums as like classics for a genre that you're often compared without even the person making the comparison being aware that they're trying to hold you to a specific standard. Um, one of the ways that I see that a lot is that uh, although people make space for albums that, you know, veer away from it, someone like uh, Kendrick, um, someone like, to a certain extent, Griselda, but I think they're, they're subverting some things too. But yeah, like there are just certain people who are, have become the standard and you have to tell the story a very specific way and you have to use X amount of drums and X amount of, uh, you know, soul samples. And then it's like in contention to be a classic. And I think I'm just, yeah, I'm just not interested in it anymore. <laughs> like I'm not interested in most of the, the metrics that people um, are trying to like gauge me with. And does that approach reflect the album title at all? Um, like, does the album feel more honest or than some of your previous works? So the funny thing about the word candid, it's not that it's more honest, it's just more transparent. So you can say something that's truthful and it can still be hiding something. And I think that, yeah, I think that, I think it's a transparent album in the sense that I'm telling a very, very intimate story, but it's not transparent in that I'm providing trauma porn for the average listener. Because again, who does that serve? Certainly not me. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to ask a bit about just reading about you on the internet. It seems like you've lived a ton of different places. And I saw you referred to as like a Philly MC or a Charlotte MC or Brooklyn. Um, is there any place that you feel most attached to or where do you feel like you draw most of your influence from? I have to say that I'm split down the middle with Philly and Charlotte. Brooklyn is just where I live, <laughs> um, truly. And to be more like, to be like, you know, even more frank, I consider myself a new African, meaning a person who is African descendant, but born in the Imperial Corps. Um, and that is informing more about my identity than ever uh, nowadays. But yeah, it's Philly and Charlotte. It's not at Brooklyn. It's not anywhere. <laughs> I was born in Charlotte and to like, in no uncertain terms, I was made into the artist that I am currently in Philly. Yeah, and there's so much, I feel like just dope hip hop that comes out of Philly in general. Did any of those, um, did Philly rap influence you when you were coming up? What's funny is it's really Philly's soul and Philly's uh, R&B jazz scenes and the um, West African and Afro-Cuban drumming 
community. Those are the two things that really created space for me to like explore sound. And yeah, Philly, Philly rap is influential in the sense that I just, I, there's no, there's, there's no way that I'm not gonna make sure that I'm not coming correct when I'm rapping. But I think the whole Black Lily movement, whether it be, you know, The Roots, Jill Scott, Music Soul Child, Bilal in particular for me, um, and then by extension, the people that they touched. So got the Soulquarians with Erykah Badu, Dilla. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's also, yeah, like, I, it would be, I would be remiss to say that Philly Rap didn't have an impact, but it was really like, the sun, like the the sonic texture and palette of Philly that helped create, um, like just helped inform my musical identity. Earlier, you meant you made a comment about the imperial core and just navigating identity. I think it's so important to use that sort of language when it comes to like music in the space. And um, I wanted to actually go back to an earlier topic that you brought up. You know. Um, uh, I've been a, I've been a fan of yours for some time now, and Southpaw was one Thanks. of my favorites. Yeah. Was one of my favorites from 2020, and Southpaw really portrayed this aggressive and defensive approach to you know violence, um, with the boxing imagery, with the opening of you kind of like having this theme of like you need to protect yourself, you need to have the self defense, and then um, jump forward a year or so, you you have songs like Dangerous, which is just this beautiful mosaic exploration of like self and violence you know um and then you have songs on on candid like so like easy to kill so i really wanted to ask you um it's a lot of you navigating a lot of violence around you and especially within your interpersonal relationships how do you navigate the chaos around you and how do you find peace i don't <laughs> peace is not something that i I have like a, a firm grasp on. And I think, I, I just don't, I'm not seeing it for the people who say that they do. Um, and so a friend of mine, the person who, um, like one of my like life partners, Victoria and Ford, they're the person who's reading the Toni Morrison quote at the beginning of Chico. Um, and Tony says something to the effect that like, there's a couple of different responses that you can have to chaos. And I think my response to chaos is art. Um, and it's also recognizing the limitations of art. So I can, I can make a song and that song can be beautiful, but that song in and of itself is not radical. That song in and of itself is not revolutionary. My actions are radical my actions are revolutionary. I have the capacity to organize for the sake of revolution, but the song itself is not doing the work that folks kind of ascribe to it. So no, I don't, I don't always have the peace, <laughs> but I do have mechanisms through which I'm able to recognize that my lack of peace is not my own doing and to work really tirelessly to like inform myself and other folks about what we can do to actually gain some like tangible peace because 
So currently, obviously, have a, an enormous international conflict. Um, but I think that a lot of people don't recognize that acts of war happen daily. And we have to just name them as acts of war. <laughs> so if a population inside any country can, doesn't have access consistently to clean water, sufficient food, medical care, adequate education, and just protection from other people and from the state itself, those are all acts of war, point blank period. So when people recognize that the state is at war with them, then hopefully it will like the, the, corner, the, the corner that I turned, I'm hoping that other people will turn the corner as well and their understanding of their subject position in the States in particular. Yeah, and I think that's interesting what you said about like having those positions versus like the music, but the music isn't necessarily in action. Do you feel any responsibility to put that kind of energy into your music or do you think you can kind of keep them separate while still being like an advocate for like, the things you care about most? I think that you have to be honest with yourself about what music you make. I think that people's intentions for their music vary. I, I'm a, this is my job. <laughs> like at the end of the day, I am a worker. I am the, the work that I make is consumed in a different way than other people's labor. But at the end of the day, I'm working. Um, and I'm making decisions both with my artistic endeavors and intentions in mind, as well as knowing that I need to feed myself and need to clothe myself, shelter myself, and that there are other people around me who are dependent on my productivity as an artist. So like, I can't tell anybody how to engage with a capitalist system because there's no perfect way to do this, but I'm gonna use the relative, you know, privilege that I have in that I was able to create a, an audience for myself outside of the label system to be able to say what I wanna say, when I wanna say it, over whatever beat I wanna say it on. <laughs> some people don't have that, like some people don't have that room and it's not, like it's less of an indictment of them than it is an indictment that the music that would lead to coalition building and liberation for all oppressed people, like that, like it's an indictment of the system that doesn't allow that to happen, not of the person individually. But also like, fuck Kanye, cause like, what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I've been with that man from time, but like it's very disappointing to see how he's using his influence currently. It's really sick. Yeah, um, Kanye West is a whole other conversation on uh, evidence in its own right. But I really like what you what you're saying about uh, coalition building and how your actions, not necessarily the songs themselves, are revolution are, are revolutionary. Um, I think something very important that we're and that we're seeing with a lot of um, newer slash. Um, smaller artists is creating these sustainable communities within the music realm of have and having that um, artists 
ownership, the ownership of their art and the autonomy of being able to perform concerts like how they want, um, have getting to navigate this space while still creating a sustainable career for them and others. And correct me if I'm wrong, I saw that you've been on Patreon for a few years now. And I saw, and I, I think it was um, late lately that I saw your post on like the creation of, I think the song was One More Night with Topaz, uh, yeah, One More Night with Topaz Jones. And you posted it on your Patreon. And I just think that's so sick that you're creating a space to where you can kind of build that um, that that lo- a more intimate connection with your with your fans and your audience while still creating a very su- sustain- sustainable career for yourself. So um, shout out to Patreon. And I wanted to ask you, um, that jump can be a little difficult, um, creating a paywall for smaller artists. So what challenges have you been seeing using P- Patreon as a platform, but what pros did you see like immediately? Really, I like the ability to provide context because a song is just a snapshot of a moment. It can't tell you everything. And some people <laughs> uh, like to create theories around what I'm saying. So it's, it's nice to be able to just say, this is what I meant. Um, Patreon is really cool because I think really it's a space that I can explore the type of engagement that I want to have. The only drawback I think to Patreon is that I I would like to be able to have folks engage with the content and like be subscribed to the content without them having to pay. Um, And they don't allow for like, you know, free memberships just yet. It's something that they're, I'm pretty sure they're working on, but it hasn't, you know, hasn't rolled out. Um, I'm sure they're slow to do it because that literally would not make them any money. Um, but yeah, I, one of the things that I struggle with in general as an anti-capitalist, as a socialist like person, let alone a musician, is feeling like my labor deserves compensation, but compensation from whom is a really tough question for me because I am not concerned at all with, you know, the consumer paying 99 cents, a dollar 29, like 10 bucks for, for my album. Like, okay, fine. But like, if you want to listen to the music, I don't think that there should be a barrier, but the United States in particular has taken a lot of funding that could otherwise be used for art making um, out of you know the national budget um, and other countries like like for example my the the best example that I can give is Daniel Caesar made his first project almost solely off of grants. Like, you, you can say what you want about Daniel Caesar and you can say what you want about Canada, but like, that's amazing. Like, he didn't have to go get a loan from a bank or essentially go get a loan called in advance from a comp- like a, a label. 
He just had to apply. The money was given to him. He used it at, at his own discretion. And then we got the, the benefit of Freudian, or we got the benefit of, I think that was the name of the first album. Anyway, art is a public good. Art is a public good. Like, it is not meant to be privately owned and consumed based on people's socioeconomic status. I live and die by that. So like creating frameworks for people to make the music that they wanna make, make the art that they wanna make full stop um, without having to forego their ownership of the thing that they made. I feel like if that's not a beacon of socialism, then I don't know what the fuck is, <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> no, I definitely agree. And I had no idea that Daniel Caesar did that. Um, and just, we have like two more questions. First is just like, kind of speaking on like um, community, can you talk about also like, um, the collaborators you brought onto this project um, and sort of like relationships with them and like what it was like working with them. I don't work with anybody with whom I can't say I love you. And I know that's like probably corny a little bit, but it's true. I love all of my collaborators um, because I trust them in a space where trust is like paramount. The studio is really about trust. And a lot of people will say, oh, it's about the vibe or it's about like your talent. Not really, like if I trust the person beside me to do their best at what they do and that if I'm not doing my best, they're gonna tell me and like, we're not gonna feel like we're not gonna internalize it in a way that would be detrimental to the outcome, which is us making something together. She's sick. She's amazing. Like I said, I went to school. I went to school with just about my whole team, like my whole like core team. So that's Ethan Boydeau, who is co-producer on Easy to Kill, Call Me, a couple of other songs. Um, and we've been working together since the beginning of my career. Um, yeah, he's my manager, creative partner. Devin Hobdi and Corey Smith-West are the folks I've known literally since 2011, but in 2016, we worked together and dropped an EP together, or really it was 2015, but who's counting these years these days? Um, yeah, so like those are, that's like my core. And then more recently, but still like four or five years ago, um, Cam Dela who's an outstanding producer and just like reps South Jersey in a way that I've never seen anybody rep South Jersey. Um, like unbelievable on the keys and just, just like a wonderful person to be around. Um, Kingsley Ibanechi, who you hear on two tracks back to back <laughs> on the album, which I feel like is low key unheard of, but I just, I just didn't care. Um, he sounded so good and lee clark who produced dangerous um what you deserve reincarnate which 
I said that Nights Like This is my favorite track, but Reincarnate is also like something that's really special to me. Um, and Lee is just a, a maestro with creating soft and tender moments and otherwise very like hard, uh, hard songs. Um, yeah, and then my like my live band actually was involved with Candid just a little bit there at the tail end on the other side. Um, but my band is also extremely important in my like creative process because I'm always thinking about how the songs would translate to live performance. So that's Cam Cephas, Max Honig, uh, had AJ on, on Git for other side. Kayla Childs, Ray Winder on saxophone flute, um, Larry Monroe Jr. on Git. Yeah, I don't know, just these are my guys. Oh, Cordell, of course, on background vocals. Yeah, it's just, I, I, like, I really appreciate that I've been able to be friends first with people who are also unbelievably talented and then we get to like grow in our artistry together. Yeah, you can definitely hear that vibe on the album. It just sounds so tight and like everyone knows and cares about each other, which is an awesome feeling. Um, and then just finally, um, I know the album just came out. Do you have any plans to do any shows? Do you have anything coming up that people should be aware of? Yeah, so a couple of things really. We are gonna release uh, a director's cut of the album, which I'm really excited about. Um, I wrote, edited, mixed, produced, sound designed, uh, an experimental podcast that's dropping soon as well. Um, that's, yeah, it's like a, an accompaniment to the album and it informs a, a lot of what you'll hear on the, the director's cut of the album. Um, Beyond that, uh, I am working on a couple shows. I don't know if a tour is in the cards just yet, but I'm hoping that before the end of the year, it's safe for everyone to pull up, but also, you know, I'd love to get out on the road. For sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. We hope you enjoyed getting to know Ivy Soul and check out their album, Candid. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.